Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dropping In. We're here live with Sid Ballman, who's in Washington, D.C., to gather us around the proverbial campfire in West Texas for his book, Seventh Flag. On Dropping In, we bring you diverse stories about identity as we ourselves struggle to make sense out of what's happening now. The truth is stranger than fiction, said George Byron, and our reality right now is painful and difficult. We hope you're safe and well. It's Easter and Passover this weekend, and in the season of second chances and potentially rebirth to a hopefully more and just and better world, we send warm greetings. Despite all the odds, we feel more connected to strangers now than ever. This passage from James Baldwin reminds me of what we do here at Dropping In. For while the tale of how we suffer and how we are delighted and how we may triumph is never new, it always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this darkness. So today my guest is someone who writes fiction that sounds like it could be true. Sid Ballman is a rock star. It also happens that we do rub elbows together, Sid. He and I hang out together at family holidays. Uh, Sid's a brother-in-law of sorts. And Seventh Flag is Sid's first novel, and it comes with a breadth of knowledge. Sid is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated national security correspondent. He's covered wars in the Persian Gulf, Somalia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and the Kosovo, and has traveled extensively with two American presidents and four secretaries of state on overseas diplomatic missions. With the emergence of the web and the commoditization of content, Ballman moved into the business side of communications. He helped us found a news syndicate focused on the interests of women and girls, and he served as a communications chief for the largest consortium of U.S. international development organizations. Quite a hefty resume. He's also led two successful progressive campaigning companies and launched a new division at a large international development firm centered on violent radicalism, which is a subject in his book, Seventh Flag. There are also other security issues on behalf of governments and nonprofits that he has worked on behalf of. He is a fourth-generation Texan, as well as a climber, surfer, paddler, and benefactor to Smith College. Sid lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and kids and two dogs. And Sid, I would add to this resume, don't forget that you're a ninja barbecuer. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us on Dropping In. Thank you, Diane. It's a nice introduction, particularly the part before you got to me. Well, listen, you're, you're the star. I, I, I know that you and your book inspire quite a bit, and um, our listeners can find you at www.sidballman.com for a shot of 
you can see Sid with the U2 rocker Bono and um, see for yourself. Sid, just tell us for a moment here, how did that come about, that shot, that beautiful shot of you and Bono? Um, Sure. Um, uh, You don't think he really wrote all of those songs, do you? (laughs) The truth is... (laughs) The truth is that I was the brains behind all of this. No, not seriously though. Um, it's the big reveal here. The started. big reveal, yeah. And 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 I, and I will answer that question. I just want to give a shout out to my friends and my readers in this really tough time. Um, I don't I connect with you through my books and through other ways, but keep the faith, baby, and uh, better times are coming. That's right. Um, so. The, uh, the picture with Bono, um, back during the times when I was uh, um, working with that large international development organization, um, we had a conference, and Bono was our guest for three days. Three days. This was back in the Bush administration, the second Bush administration. And I was what they call in the business his body boy, which cool. means that for those two or, two or three days... Um, I would lead him through crowds as you see me doing there or make sure his Guinness was the right temperature or um, things like that. So that's all. Those are the important things. Yeah. The most important thing. And um, Mm -hmm. it seems a little pretentious, but um, my publicist thought that'd be a good picture to put on the website. So we might argue. I love it. Body boy. Okay. This is big. And I, you know, it's just, it's just really nice. It's a nice association. So I, I do want to get right to your book. You've written a really compelling book, Seventh Flag, published by Spark Press. It's a work of historical fiction, and it has real authority. And I think there are two voices at work there, the journalist in you and the author. Uh, the book is in its second printing. So congratulations on the success of Seventh, Pla- uh, Seventh, Seventh Flag, Sid. Um, it resonates for me at dropping in um, because of the themes of identity that stand out right away to me. There are many others, but, um, you know, I'll get to that first because um, that's why we're here. You're, you're from a suburb of Dallas, Texas, and the book Seventh Flag is set in a town in West Texas called Dell City. You write the character um, about the character Deuce. All these are great names. Um, and Deuce says, Ray... You know, this is a quote. Some, his, he's had a death in his family of his grandfather. But Ray was still his grandfather, you write. And his profane death shattered Deuce's illusion of what Dell City was to him, the foundation on which he stood in a shifting world. And so I, I just got to wondering right away how much of identity derives from where you're from and what you're, what, what's your take on that? Wow, I wrote that. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty damn good, right? No, it's about the hometown, Dell City. So, but uh, you know, how does yeah. it how does it weigh in to the other factors in identity? Well, um, so I would draw on two things here. One is um, how identity is linked to those that context that surrounds you when you're born, where you're from, what your religion may be, how devout you are, and then there's that identity. Um, that you sculpt within yourself um, as you grow and mature and become the person that you become. Um, And a lot of that 
second part is what we choose. Um, and that goes a little bit to the story of this country, the story of America, the story of the United States, a country of immigrants, a country where, um, I guess, pretty much all of us, except for indigenous peoples, um, the first Americans, um, come to pursue their dreams. Right. Um, so they come so to do their there's sculpting. no, you know, quick, quick, quick sort of answer to that, but... Um, I think that, um, at least in this country, um, you can, as I said, sculpt who you want to be and live where you want to and, and be that person. Um, right. But right. in the Absolutely. end, in, in the end, it's all about the authenticity that you have within yourself and not the trappings you choose to wear. Right. Getting those coherent with one another, right? That they're cogent to one another. Uh, You talk about the identity of America and you started to do so, I think, beautifully. you're going to hear yourself again here. It's, it's, it is incredibly well-written. Um, Life in Dell City had followed the arc of a nation whose people served as a beacon of optimism and opportunity after the Great War, but over the next eight decades lost that innocence in a world where radicalism had metastasized into every community. And I, I think it's really interesting here because you, you start to really uncover and really unravel for us the scapegoat mentality um, you talk about the brittle optimism that emerged after the United States 9-11 uh, nightmare bolstered by the, quote, tenuous victory in Iraq and the capture of Saddam, Saddam Hussein. Um, and you, you describe it as a different kind of attitude than there was after the World War II. Um, can you tease that out a little bit more for us? I mean, you've started to allude to the fact that, you know, people are trying to sculpt their identity here as immigrants. It's not working. There's a scapegoat mentality at work, at hand. You know, what, what, what's changed over time, do you think? Well, let me just take a little step back for your listeners. Um, and just because the book seems to cover so, you're touching on so many things. Um, as you said, the book starts just, it's a, it's a historical fiction, and it starts just after World War II. And it traces the worldwide experiences of these two families that live in this small West Texas town. One is a, is a prosperous farming family. The other is a family of Syrian Muslim immigrants who helped them carve a farming empire out of the high desert. Um, so that is kind of the first part of this book. The second part deals with what you just alluded to, Diane, which is what has changed this country, and of all places, an iconic, and that was what I wanted to do, was to use the, what I consider the most iconic setting, a farm, a ranch in West Texas, um, to tell that story about this creeping um, radicalism that has overtaken this country. Um, and this is not you know, when we talk about radicalism, and that's an area in which I've worked, it's not just um, um, jihadist radicalism or, you know, it's, it's the far right as well. Um, and I think our current political phenomenon has really pried the lid off a cauldron, the cauldron of, of, um, of people of, of white extremism that is, to me, the most dangerous um, uh, 
element in our country right now. So that's what I really wanted to tell was why are people, why have people in this country become so radicalized? Mm-hmm. What is it? You know, what, what radicalizes them and where is it headed? And, you right. know, in the middle of that are these, you know, are these people are these, these victims. So that's why just, just quickly you had two characters who are profoundly radicalized. One is uh, in the Syrian Muslim family who was recruited by ISIS. The other is um, in the prosperous farming family, a white guy who's in, um, recruited by uh, the far right. And they both, without any spoilers, they both meet um, rather um, distasteful ends. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this intertwining, uh, being able to show this evolution through uh, the intertwining of two families is, is genius um, because, first of all, it's, it's, it's relatable. It's understandable. Um, and I do want to uh, acknowledge something that I think, you know, you just alluded to. Thank you for framing the book out for us because I, of course, neglected to do that. There are these two families living in West Texas. But I do think that what you've just said about, um, you know, the thing that's overlooked uh, in the whole kind of body count of um, extremism is that there is no, at, at the core, this is your quote again, at the core of their violent radicalism, there is little difference between an ISIS bomber and in London and a white supremacist shooter in Charleston. Um, and I think that, you know, there, that's, that's a big stake right there that you've um, taken hold of. And I, I really, you know, commend you for it. Um, has there been backlash from the book that you've experienced as a result of this statement making? Well, I mean, there was that uh, sniper out there the other day. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you know, it's, um, there has been sort of predictable, uh, um, some predictable backlash, less than I thought, actually. And right. um, I, uh, when the book came out in late October, I went on a, a very lengthy national tour and uh, in, into some of these very, very conservative areas. I went to Dell City even. Um, and I was um, actually very pleasantly surprised that... Um, there was no nastiness, no um, bitterness. People just embraced it. And I think that the reason that they did is because of the even-handed way that I handled it um, in the book. Um, and just, just, you know, not to get too wonky or anything here, but, you know, radicalism is um, the way I look at it, at least in my work, and is that it is a public health issue. Um, mm-hmm. very much like this virus that's ripping through this country, um, and it metastasizes in the same way for different reasons, um, right. but it metastasizes and spreads in the same way. And, then, you know, there's certain reasons for it, um, feelings of incompetence, um, injustice, uh, um, maybe brutality on behalf of law enforcement, sometimes an emotional right. or physical handicap. Um, But it's very much a uh, public health sort of approach that I think works rather than a bag them and tag them approach. But of course. Exactly. Exactly. And, and sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. 
I mean, I, I just have to say, though, I think, you know, it's, it's even-handedness. And also, I think you snatched something out of the air. There, there was, there, people recognized the truth in it, that somehow you didn't um, fabricate or use hyperbole to try to make a point that was so exaggerated and crazy. It sounded like, you know, everything else that we listened to. Sorry. Um, and, and I think that, you know, just the logic of it. Um, and I, I guess I want to also, now that you've broached the subject and we're in at the deep end here, COVID-19, I mean, from a logistical point of view right now, we don't see, you know, mass shootings or terrorist acts right now because there's not large groups forming. Um, you know, a lot of this uh, activity that Seventh Flag talks about has apparently gone underground. We've got about a minute left, um, and then I'd like to come back and talk about the foment that's created by the economic shutdown and the you know minority groups and fringe groups and the mainstream that's suffering for right now, um, and the foment that's created by by bigotry um, and the xenophobia that we are experiencing in order to quote protect ourselves. So. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Sid Ballman on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's Manuscript Coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D. Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here on Dropping In with Sid Ballman, author of Seventh Flag. It's a momentous book. It has a lot of impact uh, in terms of the way we think about our identity as a country and our evolution and our attitudes. Um, Right now, we're talking about the whole pressure cooker that exists because of COVID-19 and the exacerbation out of a lot of um, instigating issues that uh, have seeded towards 
creating radicalism in the first place, um, disenfranchised minorities. Um, and in one passage of the book, the root of the problem, you write, lay in dealing with the underlying reasons people become so alienated and incensed that they would do the unthinkable, like turn themselves into human bombs and blow up a bus full of children. And the stigmatization of minorities by populist politicians greedy for votes fanned the fire of hatred into an inferno of radicalized flame. And I, I guess I'm wondering, Sid, because you do you do straddle two voices here. You are a seasoned journalist um, and a and an author. But you know, in your in your view, because we left off at this point, is is this what you would call uh, the irrevocable march towards anarchy? Because we are experiencing so many more incendiary influences. Well, um, a couple thoughts on that, Diane, um, and I'll try to be brief. So, my greatest uh, fear in this current crisis was a breakdown of of order in society, um, you know, mm-hmm. starting with petty crime and leading to a situation where those who believe guns are the answer will begin to use them. Mm-hmm. And I'm, uh, um, we haven't seen much of that yet. Although, um, I had a, uh, just very, very briefly, um, a good friend of mine, daughter, um, was driving home from a grocery store the other day, innocently, and uh, someone who was might have been homeless, I don't know, they're not sure, um, threw a tire iron through her passenger window and oh. injured her very gravely for oh, no, no apparent reason. Um, and in refl- shocking crime. Um, and in reflecting on that, it gets to the root of what is radicalism. I mean, this idea of income, this whole crisis has laid bare the um, one of the most serious issues, I think, in society today, which is income inequality. Now, I'm not right. preaching take the money from the rich and give it to the poor, but it is striking how, um, how unequal it is, how when it comes to ventilators, the uh, and health care and bailouts and mortgages. I mean, it's homeowners who are getting relief on their mortgages. Landlords are not giving any relief to the people who can't afford to own them. And I think that if we are to um, um, talk about anarchy and revolution, um, it will be um, in that, it will express itself as a result of that type of inequality. Right. And I think that there is, um, you know, th- this is this is at the heart of it. The income disparity is there is not one, um, in, you know, the, the, the International Monetary Fund. There is no body that speaks to this disparity with any sense that it's healthy. Uh, the major banks, you know, all everyone has condemned it as a uh a radicalizing factor for sure, but also one that is not sustainable in terms of helping communities sustain themselves or much less grow. So, I mean, I think that's absolutely right to get to that very heart of 
heart of that. And I think we should actually, um, since you know we're not recommending answers here, but we're just observing that this is the the crucible that we're in, and uh, we're going to look at how that plays out and what our role can be in helping it play out in a healthy way. Um, I do want to go back to your other voice, which is your author voice, and and ask you because you know obviously we've just delved on some pretty tricky issues. What kinds of stories, what's the, what characterizes the kind of stories you want to write about? Um, you know, we, we, we had Craig Pittman on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about, you know, he wrote about, writes about Florida, weirdness, corruption, sleaziness, uh, unexpected twists. This is what draws him. And I wondered, because obviously now we're at, um, we're talking about a subject matter with this book that, you know, if it wasn't even-handed, could make some people twitch. So I'm just wondering what what drives you or draws you as an author? I know you're writing a second novel now. What draws you to the page? Um, well, certainly not the money. <laughs> um, <laughs> no subject matter-wise. You know. um, well, you know, that's, that's a big question, and it's a good question. And what comes to mind immediately is um, the idea of or an image comes to mind immediately. The image of a single person um, trying to stop a, the tsunami. Um, the, the, the single Chinese protester in Tiananmen Square standing in front of the tank. Um, the, um, so the idea of um, Almost, um, I don't want to say comic, but um, um, exaggerated heroism, and um, uh, particularly of underdogs, and um, and community communities that pull themselves out of um, the fires of destruction, like um, you know, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, um, you know. Um, um, victories of spirit against great odds. Um, and also, um, I like to write, I mean, just, just you know, myself personally, I like to write about adventure, um, you know, adventurous types of things, even sort of exaggerated adventurous types of things. Um, in some ways, I think you need to be larger in life in your art today to break through um, because um, social media has distorted things so dramatically. Um, so heroism and, and <laughs> sex, if you will, and, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a place for people to retreat a little bit and to maybe find their better selves. Right, escape into and maybe go inward. Um, I, I think that this um, this sense of exaggerated heroism and the lone the lone dove, right? The the, the I think that that's interesting, and it, it is apparent in your book as this a sense of swift justice. I mean, that accompanies life in rural Texas on football teams, high school football teams, way uh, in on this. There's a part part to play in hunting scenes or also in the book. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a, um, a quote that's her epigraph, who gets to kill, quis a deuce, who is like God? 
And I wonder if you relate that to this lone, this lonesome uh, person. Um, so as part of my research for this book, I spent some time up at West Point, the U.S. Military Academy. And several, as you know, uh, several of the characters attended West Point. And um, it's, it's an amazing place. Anyone who hasn't been there, I would commend. It's like stepping back into a history book. But um, they have a chapel there quite a beautiful chapel, and I was sitting there one day, and there's a stained glass window that has that inscription in Latin, Deus et Deus, who is like God. And um, that quote played into the first book um, as one of the characters is getting ready to go to war and is conversing through a letter with his grandmother about what it would mean to kill, who has the right to take a life, and does taking a life mean that you are like God, which, of course, is a profound hubris? Um, mm-hmm. It also plays into um, my second book, which is, you know, the second book in a series of books about these similar themes with some of the same characters and some of the same geographies. Um, and it's interesting to me, um, having spent a lot of time around the military, um, how much religion resides in the way they operate and the way they motivate. Um, mm-hmm. And that has been a theme, really, since, I mean, you go back into history, the, you know, the... Um, God is on our you know, side. The, 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 yeah, God is on our side, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, you know, and people can draw their um, own conclusions about about that. Um, but, you know, wars like this current war we're in with the coronavirus present opportunities to advance religion. I mean, I note, for example, not to be too controversial, that um, in the state of Texas, my home state, um, they have interpreted um, abortion as a non-essential um, procedure and banned it during this period. Um, Isn't that convenient? Well, I mean, I don't, you know, we all have our views on it, but I do find it uh, an odd sort of thing to stick into this whole debate, whole crisis. Right. There's a reprioritization that happens without any consultation or kind of democratic input. But let's get back to sex because that could be a that could be a fun subject here. I, I honestly I know that I know what you're talking about. There the way that um, the hierarchy of needs that happens in this in this pandemic is going to declare policy in a certain way, and it and it is disturbing. Um, but you you mentioned the idea of sex and violence. I have two different questions coming. One is, um, you know, when you were talking about why you write and providing us an escape hatch from our daily lives, which goodness knows we need. Um, You know, one of the radicalized figures in Seventh Flag um, is um, radicalized through the process of watching internet porn and then goes through a dark portal and it comes out on the other side. And um, I wondered if you thought, first of all, did then sex equate with his radicalization as in 
sex equates for an arson, let's say. And secondly, do you think that social media drives like Google and, you know, entities like Facebook and Twitter, do you think they have a better handle on this or has it just been allowed to run rampant? My favorite subject. So you've pried the lid off a, off a huge subject. Um, and I'm, you know, I have my opinion um, and I'll, I'll share them freely. Um, the way that, in my experience, working with radicalized populations, and I've done it all over the world in my previous work, um, many different types of uh, religions, um, mm-hmm. and even in prison. Um, I think the way that, um, or what I've been told by those who have, have gone down that path is that um, they view um, pornography um, as a, as, as a, in sex, as a fruit of conquest. It's sort of the rape and pillage mentality. So mm-hmm. that in a place like Syria. 72 virgins, um, yes. In, in ISIS-controlled Syria, um, you have these horrific accounts of these ISIS fighters who take these young girls as their brides and do as they please. And um, they are justified in some ways by those who interpret um, what what they worship as justified. Um, so, it's, you know, it's, sex is probably, in, in some ways, it's about control. Um, in some way, in, in other ways, it's not about that at all. But I think that's how it plays into the whole radicalism. And a lot of times, um, you know, on the you know, in other contexts, in other radicalized contexts, um, um, impotence um, is something that radicalizes um, some of these people. And that's a theme, as you know, it's that's power. in the book. Right, it's power. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there's this whole movement, um, um, this, this sort of, Hang on, hang on, just a sec, Sid. Sid, I'm, I, I'm glad you, I'm glad you've, you've taken this lid off, and I'd love to be able to talk about it forever. We've got a couple minutes left. Um, do you think that? And I'm, I'm going to just give you a, a quick yes or no question. Um, Janine Cummings in the Amer- in American Dirt. Do authors have the, you know, right to? This may be a question you don't like. Um, to write from the point of view of another culture. Quick yes or no. You've done it. Yes. So you've done it well. So because your research is extensive. So are you on the on the sort of affirmative side of that even now? Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Um, um, yes, yes, and yes. And and art one expresses their art in the way they want. Right. I mean, did Leonardo da Vinci have the gravitas to to, to portray the Last Supper? Right. Which, by the way, I've seen um, now with um, Zoom images across the top with the 12 disciples and only Jesus at the table. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Sid Ballman on Dropping In. We're on Alexa smart speakers and connected devices. Hey, Alexa, play... Being Here podcast on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. 
Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out, finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com. Or on her author's page, dianedewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. And we're back with Sid Ballman, author of Seventh Flag, published by Spark Press. It's absolutely a tour de force. Sid Ballman is working on a second novel. What's the title, Sid? Murmuration. Murmuration. And do we follow these characters as well, or are we in a different subject? Yes, it, um, there's significant overlap um, with characters and geography. It includes... Uh, all of the many of the characters from the first book, but most prominently my favorite character, um, Adamar Zarkan, who is a Syrian Muslim um, immigrant to Texas, the barrel racer, kicker on mm-hmm. her, her brother's football team, and a military sniper who um, who goes to Somalia during the war. That's where it begins, um, and it also revolves around the same themes of. Um, Immigration and radicalism, on, on, and particularly, um, particularly on the white supremacist side, income inequality, and it even has a uh, has a virus in there. You know, I was writing prior to this current um, virus, but it fits right in. I I wondered if you felt as though you had been prescient because I felt there were a number of things that were uh, prescient in this as well. Um, there is also, you know, at the at the, uh, you know, at your very at the very end, you have um, the Book of Revelations, which, by the way, is the only apocalyptic document in the New Testament canon. Um, that felt very um, prescient to me that you talked about. Um, you know, who is like God from the book of Revelation. There's also um, the, the, um, the passage from the Quran. Um, and, and, you know, when the earth is rocked in her last convulsions, we're going to try not to despair, but, you know, there is a sort of sense of, you know, are we really in some kind of last reverberations that we need to uh, seize and kind of take control of to um, correct some of these widespread disparities. Um, and I, I do want to just um, 
offer our listeners, um, lest this sound far-fetched, I'm going to ask Sid just to recount the whole way in which um, the Syrian immigration and the Muslim um, rootedness in West Texas occurred, Sid. It's the it's the story of the dromedaries, right? Well, that's a fun story. Um, one of the fun stories I found in my research, so I'll just tell it here. Um, and of course, well, maybe your listeners don't know, but Texas is the has more Muslims than any other state in this country. And in part, there's a reason which I use as a device to get my characters to Texas. But this is this is a true part of history. So back in in the middle 1800s, President Franklin Pierce, who was an innovator, first to install hot water in the White House, for example, um, he and his Secretary of War, they called it then, Jefferson Davis from Mississippi, decided to launch an experiment whereby they would incorporate camels into the U.S. cavalry. They felt they'd work very well in desert environments. Um, they live on um, indigenous vegetation, creosote cactus, and as everybody knows, they can go a long way with no water, and, and they can carry a lot of weight, and they move pretty quick. Um, so they imported... Um, um, thousands of these camels and hundreds of camel handlers from the Middle East and North Africa. They landed in uh, Indianola, Texas, just south of Houston, made their way to the desert southwest and began this experiment to uh, supplement the U.S. cavalry with camels. Um, Extraordinary. Ultimately, it, fa- yeah, ultimately it failed um, for three reasons, really. Camels are quite ornery animals. They don't get along with horses. Um, the cavalry didn't particularly see camels fitting into their brand. I was slumping around the desert on a camel. These were pony guys. And then mm-hmm. the Civil War came along. And these camels were sold to circuses and prospectors. But the uh, handlers, the camel handlers, the Muslims stayed. And many of them made their way down into Texas. And, and hence, one reason for the population. And um, to this very day, if you go to Quartzsite, Arizona, there is a monument to one of the original camel handlers. His name was Haji Ali. But, you know, in America, we like to make nicknames, so they called him High Jolly. And there's a monument mm-hmm. to him, a pyramid, of course, it's pyramid-shaped stack of rocks with, with a so camel on the top and an inscription to High Jolly. So great. Um, just think of the cowboy boots you'd have to wear to be riding on a camel. I really, I, I like it. I, I think, it, you know, it's too bad. <laughs> It, you know, but it, le- it, le- it led to this book, and that's a great outcome because the book, um, you know, takes off. We go off on this wild ride from the, from the camels, and we have the merging of these, not, and I would say the sort of um, intertwining, again, of these two families, the All-American Laws um, and the Zarkans, who are the Muslims, um, and the, you know, all American laws obviously had some immigrant antecedents as well as they're not Native Americans. Um, but these, these two families intertwine beautifully, personally, intimately, um, and in their history. At the end of the book, I'm going to jump through to the end of the book here. And it's not a spoiler because um, Jack Law, who's the patriarch, of the law family, uh, he's a hundred years old. So, by saying that he died, it's not going to be a big spoiler alert. But he, he he writes this letter, and obviously, Sid Wallman is the creator of the letter in Seventh Flag. I'll just quote it here. 
Look around you in the room, white, brown, Christian, Muslim, Syrian, American, Texan. This is your family. These are the people you can count on, not those clowns in Washington, Austin, Syria, or anywhere else where they tell you how to think, how to pray, who to kill. Each of you has a part in me through your blood, blood spilled, or sweat. We make each other immortal, and it's my honor to live on through you. Be good to each other, protect one another, hold each other close. I'd like to think that that's actually a message to all of us. Um, in this in this scene, it was um, his last will and testament, part of his last will and testament. And my question for you, Sid, is this vision of the seventh flag, which is the the you know is a historical another historical fact that the, the seventh flag would would represent this diverse group of people who populate the Texas state, and exist in this tolerant, um, cooperative way. I wonder if you could just tease it out for me, because I thought about it a lot reading your book, what the difference is between this vision and the vision of the melting pot, of American melting pot. You know, everybody was supposed to become like one, like the same. And there was a lot of inherent, you know, racism in that. This strikes me as being different. And could you tease out the difference of the vision between Seventh Flag and the American melting pot? Interesting, Diane, interesting. I don't, I, you know, when you say that everyone was supposed to go into the melting pot, we all come out the same. That sounds, that's something that makes me think. It doesn't, it, it doesn't sound right to me, and it isn't. It really isn't right. Um, although um, there are those who have felt blending in was a better was a better path to success. Um, but just to step back for a second, so um, just for your listeners, in the title, um, everyone's familiar, I think, with Six Flags Over Texas, the amusement park. Um, right. When you know it's a globalized brand, it represents the six sovereigns over the state of Texas. And when I was a kid, we lived not too far from the original Six Flags. Um, and there was no better day than when we all would pile in the car and my parents would take us to Six Flags for the day. Um, the seventh flag, however, in my conception, is what you were touching on, Diane, um, this new American identity, um, this amalgam of religion and races and um, genders and genderless and, you know, all of that is under this new seventh flag. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the friction from that, that we're feeling today, that we felt um, so strongly since Barack Obama was elected, the Tea Party emerged, um, um, Donald Trump was elected, and his constituency has emerged, is that um, People feel as if their identities, what they view as the identity of America, of them as Americans, is threatened. And I think that my personal view is the wrong way to look at it. I think it's, it, it's, um, it doesn't, it doesn't um, take anything away from you to have more diversity. It only adds to what you are and to what we are as a nation. And I would add that um, you know, it's irreversible. There is no, no turning it around. So those who don't 
like it, they're going to have to get used to it. Right. That's a key to life. But, you know, I think where we are right now and a lot of the um, enforcement of, let's say, borders are closing, you know, lots of xenophobia right now, the great other that's spreading this disease. And, of course, paranoia is fanned by the disease of COVID. I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more in your vision and the um, necessity of diversity the uh, sheer bottom line respect of it at uh, the level of humanity. But I'm wondering about it being threatened and jeopardized again because of a a sense that it's, you know, we've got to protect ourselves from the other. Um, And this is something that feels like it's encroaching. Um, I don't know if you have that sense, but maybe you could comment on it. um, Yeah. You know, just the very, the very, it occurs to me, the very notion of, sh- of social distancing, I hate that expression, but, you know, uh, you know, staying in place in your house, that's, to me, the perfect metaphor for what you just described. Are we as a nation going to shelter in place for eternity? Exactly. Um, how does that, how, I would ask you, how does that feel to you? Do you like that? Um, and if you, you don't, which I don't think anyone does, then the alternative is to open up. And, um, you know, this virus, um, there's so many metaphors in it. Um, I mean, closing the border to prevent something you can't see from coming in. I mean, I think I was thinking the other day, what would it be like if we could see this virus? It was actually something we could see lurking around, you know, sitting on people coming out of their mouths. What would it be like then? What would this, this invader look like then, and how would we react? Um, yeah, but so, it's an invisible um, specter, right? Yeah, I think what emerges from this time, I think this, as everyone says, is, is this is a historic um, point of delineation in the world, a historic point for globalization, a historic point for um, for for non-globalization. And what comes out of this, I think, will be a profoundly different world than it was prior to it. And I, for right. one, can't wait. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, and I think we need to, you know, join forces to engage people that this kind of, I mean, I think that people do feel extremely connected to one another and one another's welfare you know, a lot of that does have to do with our awareness of, you know, people dying and people dying in, um, you know, wards without loved ones and compassion that we're feeling. And it's not looking at color or gender or preference or orientation or any of that stuff. So I think that you're right. You know, the shelter in place metaphor is a brilliant one that you made of um, our country. Of course, we've got to review, you know, we've got to look at medicine as science and science is, is the thing that needs to be observed here. But, you know, if there's a silver lining and that's it in terms of globalization and understanding ourselves better, you know, it, it, it might take that for us to break down our barriers, our interior barriers and our sense of barriers um, to have a real community like the one that was envisioned in the seventh flag. Um, I do 
um, also want to talk about, you know, there are, there are other places mentioned in the book. It's quite a global sweep. Um, there are two instances where characters in the book go, and they're both women, um, Yola and uh, Adamar, go to India for healing. And um, there's some scenes of sort of shedding layers of pain and baggage um, to be able to come to a sense of peace um, with oneself and a rebuilding of oneself. And I wonder if we're all going to metaphorically um, flow down the Ganges or, you know, come to a point (laughs) where we realize that this material, the material world that we're living in and the disparity of the haves and the have-nots is at the root of a lot of these diseases and the care that we give to one another not being universal. Um, I do hope that we as a society, um, you know, do have that kind of reawakening. Let me, uh, in this age of COVID, um, let me just give um, one last, um, you know, Sid Ballman writing in Seventh Flag. He talks about enlightenment. It seeps in over time. Um, We're repeatedly getting a tap on the shoulder, like you said, Sid. And maybe with this virus, we are headed for enlightenment. We can only hope, inshallah. I just want to thank you so much, Sid Ballman. You're a terrific guest. And you can find Sid on Twitter at Sid Ballman. Uh, Facebook, Sid Ballman Jr. And thanks for a great conversation. Happy Seders, happy Easter, happy non-believers, happy Easter Bunny. And remember those of us who take, who are taking care of us, show them some love and be safe, everyone. Thanks, Sid. Thanks, Dan. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.